This is the South Florida Tech Podcast, a weekly show where we bring you the awesome, innovative people building our South Florida Tech community. Each week, we'll introduce to you one of the Sunshine State's top business, startup, or tech leaders. Learn about who they are, what they do, and have some fun conversation along the way. Our podcast sponsor is Emerge Americas. Each year, global enterprises, disruptive technology, and elite startups are highlighted at Emerge's premier tech event, Connecting the Americas. The event is held in Miami Beach, which to date has hosted organizations from over 40 countries and featured over 250 speakers from around the world. Emerge Americas is transforming Miami's tech hub by connecting entrepreneurs, investors, leading business executives, and decision makers. Uh, Brad Feld is an early stage investor, entrepreneur, and the co-founder of Foundry Group, Techstars, Mobius Venture Capital, and Intensity Ventures. I mean, most well-known, at least in my case, as the author of the book, Startup Communities. Uh, He's also earned a bachelor's degree uh, in uh, master's from Massachusetts Institute of Technology, hence the shirt today. Uh, And he's had a number of successes in venture capital investing, entrepreneurship, uh, and he's done so much in terms of writing uh, in content to share his thoughts, ideas, and insights to startup founders and startup community leaders throughout the globe. Um, and there's been a guiding light, at least for our organization, on a number of things. So, Brad, thank you so much for joining us here today and for sharing some time with us. My pleasure. Uh, I, I think the, the easiest question just to start off with was uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, what you do on a, on a daily basis nowadays. Sure. Um, I am uh, based in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, Amy and I split our time between Boulder, uh, Aspen, Colorado, and uh, Homer, Alaska, where we have a house. She grew up in Alaska. Um, I spend the bulk of my work time with Foundry Group, which is a venture capital firm that invests across the US uh, that we started in 2007. I'm also a co-founder of Techstars, uh, of which Foundry is also very involved in. So uh, I spend a decent amount of time with all things Techstars. I uh, love a couple of things. Uh, I love reading, so I read a ton. Uh, I love writing, so I write books Uh, and I love running. So I run marathons and generally spend a lot of time uh, outside running around uh, in in the mountains. Um, And then one of the things that's a real joy is Amy and I don't have kids. It's just the two of us and a dog. And uh, (laughs) yeah, you know, while COVID has been extremely difficult on many dimensions, uh, of course, including both economically and from an, uh, an equity or an equity perspective, we love spending time together. So the opportunity to just spend huge amounts of time together is another thing that I spend my days on. That is so sweet. I mean, we could have a whole podcast on just that, but um, so much to cover today, but really excited about it. I I was wondering, I mean, even when we were in the green room, you were talking about investments that go way back. So you've been doing this for a while, um, since 1987, if that's correct. And I guess I'm curious, like, how do you get on a career path like this? Can you call it a career path? Is it a calling? Is it a passion? What, you know, why did you decide to pursue this? Yeah, I think it's a very, uh, it ends up, the good answers are personal versus generic Mm -hmm. because I don't think that it's a career. I've never really thought of this as a career path and I've never really thought of myself as having a career. 
I'm sure there are other people who are, who are VCs who do think of it that way. So I'll answer the question very personally. Um, here, here was my path uh, in 60 seconds or less. Uh, I was, uh, I went to, you know, I went to school, I'm a nerd. I went to MIT. I started a company while I was there. So I was an entrepreneur. I sold that company to a public company in 1993. And at that public company, uh, I reported to the co-chairman and I learned how to buy companies. I also took basically all the money that I'd made selling my first company, a couple million bucks. And I invested in 40 uh, startups between 1994 and 96. So I learned how to be an investor by being an angel investor at the beginning of the commercial internet. I then accidentally ended up joining a group of people and investing with a team that uh, spun out of SoftBank uh, in the 1990s, originally called SoftBank Venture Capital, then ultimately called Mobius Venture Capital. Uh, but during that period of time, I still started a number of companies and was co-chairman of a handful of companies. So I straddled this investing, operating, co-founding thing. Mm -hmm. um, and when the internet bubble collapsed in 2000, uh, 2001, 2002, I decided that uh, I would be uh, just an investor. I couldn't be an operator. Although I've gone on and fun founded a number of things since then. An example would be uh, Techstars, where I was one of the co-founders, and of course, Foundry Group, where I was one of the co-founders. Um, but it wasn't really a deliberate path. And one of the powerful things to sort of end the story is having now been investing since 1994 in companies, first as an angel and now as a VC, um, one of the extremely interesting and powerful things that I've had to learn is the combination of the nature of the passage of time um, combined with both success and failure. And I've come to the place, you know, from a kind of linking it back to your question about a career from a career perspective, when people ask me, well, how do I become a VC? My answer is just go do stuff. It's kind of the generic answer to how do I become a whatever, right? But, but in that domain, like, by doing stuff, you'll, you learn, you have successes and failures. And the path to the thing you want to do is not a straight path. It's very chaotic. Mm -hmm. And I think for people, when they embrace that it's chaotic and unpredictable and it leads you in different places and has lots of failure along with success and covers a passage of time, that changes the perspective versus, okay, I want to get to this point. What are the six steps I need to take? That's pretty well. Oh. Just, just quickly. So, just to recap. So, you're saying you sold your first business, you, and then you took, you made a million, or you took a million, and you invested that across other companies. I, I, I made, I sold my first business. We sold it for a couple million bucks, and I think after tax, when all the dust settled, maybe oh, yeah. I had a million dollars, million and a half dollars of cash. I don't, I don't know the exact number. And uh, I took that cash, and I told Amy that we would never have less than hundred thousand dollars in the bank. Mm -hmm. And, but I was going to go invest a bunch. We bought a house and then I made 40 investments, 20 to $50,000 a piece. And I remember telling Amy one day that we had less than $100,000 in the bank because I really enjoyed making the investments much more than I enjoyed holding, keeping that promise. I was fortunate with the timing because I had some returns pretty quickly. So the length of time that uh, we were under 100,000 uh, of cash, right? There's plenty of illiquid value. I was pretty short, but I was young. I, I sold my first company at 28 and I figured my worst case is I could just earn money again. And so I was much more interested in 
uh, being active and learning how to invest and, and going forward than I was in sort of hoarding the money. <laughs> so that, that poses an interesting question. And I, I, for one, you know, have imposter syndrome sometimes, you know, when, when we're doing big things. But at what point did you realize you were successful enough to not just run your own company, but also invest in others, be a strategic partner, be a board member, and help other companies grow that you were supporting and investing in or just being a part of? Well, imposter syndrome is an important construct. Um, I never, and, and how I relate to it, again, I think it's a personal answer rather than, like it's hard to generalize from it. I never really worked for anybody. So even when I was in school, I started a couple of companies that failed. And my first company, I like to say, was actually my third company because the first two failed. It was actually my fourth company because I started a company with some friends in high school that I like to refer to as my zeroth company. <laughs> and um, uh, they all went to University of Texas and I went to MIT. So they threw me out of their company uh, when they all went to UT. Of course, the company failed pretty quickly. I should say, of course, the company failed pretty quickly. So it didn't matter anyway, <laughs> other, than, other than some hurt feelings. Um, the, uh, the other thing that sort of emerged from that is, um, between my fresh, uh, between my senior year in high school and my freshman year in college, I did work for someone. I worked for a startup, a husband and wife software company. They were the two founders. I was the first non-founder employee and I got paid for in that job, 10 bucks an hour. So I learned pretty quickly if I worked 80 hours a week, I made twice as much money as if I worked 40 hours a week. Um, they didn't have the concept of equity, but it was an oil and gas software company. So they gave me a 5% royalty on all the software I sold or all the software I wrote that they sold. And I wrote two products for them. And in college, when I was a freshman, I'd get a check in the mail each month for royalties, along with my check for however many hours I worked for them part-time. And sometimes it'd be a thousand bucks, sometimes it'd be 2,500 bucks. One month I got a little bit over $10,000 in the mail. And I took my entire fraternity out to Chinese food at the restaurant <laughs> across the street. And when we were done, I still had $8,000 left, right? So kind of very early on, I had this sense of being able to have my own control over my work. And this idea that I didn't have to work for someone now, that's not for everyone, but that was so wired into my way of being. Now, along the way, of course, there are lots of aspirational moments. When I was running my first company, I was in Boston. Uh, it was in the late 80s. Some of my entrepreneurial heroes at the time are names people will know. They included, of course, somebody like Bill Gates. Um, but it also included a guy named Dan Bricklin, who was the creator of VisiCalc. I was really fortunate to start a company with Dan uh, in 1995 um, uh, called Trellis uh, that I was involved with for about a year. And then I went to do, I, I actually moved from Boston to Boulder. And when I did that, I decided not to stay involved in the company. Uh, another one was Mitch Kapoor, uh, who was a hero of mine, uh, founder of Lotus, uh, and then hugely successful investor in many, in many things. Uh, and he and his wife, Frida, I am really honored to be able to call friends. Um, they've been at the front and leading edge of uh, diversity in tech, entrepreneurship, and venture capital uh, for a very long time with Kapoor Capital and all of their activities. And then another example, a guy named Steve Case, who people will recognize as the founder of AOL, 
uh, who I didn't know then, but I've gotten to know over the years and now uh, is the head of a firm called Revolution. I, I use them as examples because when I was in my 20s, these people were legends to me, right? They were absolutely heroic figures that, you know, if I was in the, the room with them, and I never was, but if I were to be in the room with them, I would have enormous imposter syndrome. I would have, you know, enormous sense of just gratitude that they would deign to spend time with me. And, you know, at, I'm 55 now. I've spent lots of time with all of them. And I, I, I view them as peers. Hopefully they view me as a peer. I've learned a ton from all of them and I just treasure the relationship. So one of the powerful things about this is I think your own view at any point in your career is to sort of accept that feeling, whatever you have is that feeling, but not let that inhibit you from your path forward. It didn't inhibit me from engaging more deeply or from when one day I got an email from Mitch out of the blue for no reason but because he'd heard about something I was involved in or a friend of ours that was a mutual friend, like, you know, you just engage. And I would just encourage people to do that. Yeah, that's that's super cool. And uh, got a shout out to Steve Case. He brought uh, his whole team to Miami. They did a whole tour here. It was really, really awesome to elevate the South Florida tech community. So that's really cool. I um, I was reading that you co-authored a book with uh, with your wife, Amy. Which, uh, which immediately made me think, aha, he works with his wife. I, I also co-founded WingCode with my husband, Yuhan. We basically do everything together. And so I wanted to ask a little bit about like what, wow, what is it like co-authoring a book with your significant other? Do, how much do you guys work together? What's that dynamic like? And what has she brought to your work? What are you bringing to her work? So the, uh, the book is a book called uh, Startup Life and the subtitle, Subtitle, a good subtitle tells you what the book's about. So the subtitle is Surviving and Thriving in a Relationship with an Entrepreneur. <laughs> so uh, we wrote the book. It's, it's semi-autobiographical, um, but we have lots of stories. I think about 20 or 30 stories from other entrepreneurial couples. And it's not a memoir. You know, we've, we sort of worked to try to make it something that was very accessible that people could read uh, as a couple or as an individual in a relationship with an entrepreneur, either the entrepreneur or significant other, or if you're both entrepreneurs, that works too, mm -hmm. and, and sort of relate to. So it's very personal and very emotional. And, you know, there's definitely some cringeworthy sections. Like I remember when we were writing it and talking about the, the chapter, you know, we have a chapter on communication, we have a chapter on money, we have a chapter on sex, like eh, our parents are going to read the chapter on sex, like, eh, <laughs> you know, how we work awesome. that. Um, but it, it was, it was a really, it's a book where both really proud of Amy's a writer. It's one of the things she does. And so it, it was a chance for me to get to work with her on her craft uh, on a, you know, I, I become a writer as well on a craft that I was developing. Um, we, we had a very predictable, in some ways, if you know us approach, we sat down uh, to talk about how to write the book once we got excited about doing it. And I said, great, um, I'll take the even chapters and you take the odd chapters. Let's figure out the chapters and you do a draft of the even ones and I'll do a chapter of the odd ones and then we'll sort of work on each other's stuff. And she said, I don't wanna do it that way. What I wanna do is I want us to both sit down at one computer at the same time and work on it together. Oh, like pair programming. Yeah, she didn't know the word for pair programming at the time. And that's what I said to her. I said, I am not pair programming a book with you. I don't wanna do that. <laughs> And so we had a negotiation like many couples do about how to actually work in an effective way to make progress on this book. And, um, and so we came up with our own approach to it. 
the uh, subsequently we work on a lot of things together and uh, 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 Amy worked in my first company. So we've been working together in different ways for many years. Um, uh, we have a foundation called the Anchor Point Foundation uh, that we run. She runs it, although we're, we're partners in it. And um, she, the way we talk about our philanthropic work is she likes big and I like small. She likes broad, strategic. I like immediate, impactful. And so our philanthropic activity covers that whole range. She's on the board of the Nature Conservancy. She's on the board of Wellesley College. She's on the board of a hospital foundation here in Colorado. Um, but we, in addition to all that, we start many nonprofits and help you know, with our funding, help other people get nonprofits started. But typically I'm the one that's deeply engaged in that work, but we're talking about all of that all the time. And so that communication and sort of that shared purpose and shared vision even if we're dealing with different things functionally has been an important part of our own working relationship. So you would recommend working with your significant other? I love it. I mean, I, I, I you know, Amy and I have been together 30 years. Um, we, we have uh, many, uh, many things uh, that have been stressful that we've worked on together and we've learned from each other. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we share in each of our places, we have a shared office. So I'm sitting in our shared office. I have a desk here. She, her desk is literally there. I'm touching her mouse. Um, and, but, but she, we also have separate space. So, um, you know, right now I'm on this. She doesn't want to be sitting next to me while I'm doing this. So she's in a separate space, but we spend a lot of time even working on different things, but with physical proximity. And it's, it's just the reinforcement of that in a relationship for me at least. And I think for her has been a real joy of our life. That's really cool. And, and I, I did also read that you, you guys have done a lot of work in the diversity space, uh, diversity and equity. And I'm wondering, did that start together? Did Amy inspire you to do that? What, were you already doing that? Did you, are you doing it together? And, and what is the diverse, if you want to just briefly yeah, say I'll, what it is, yeah. I'll separate it into, I think generally speaking, uh, there's a number of different areas where we put a lot of energy. I like to talk about gender diversity specifically because that was really the beginning of my own journey with the idea of diversity, equity, inclusion. And now I, I love the use of the word belonging in that construct um, going back to 2005. Mm -hmm. And in 2005, uh, I got approached by a woman named Lucy Sanders, who's CEO and the co-founder of the National Center for Women Information Technology. It was a new nonprofit uh, to help get more girls and women involved in computer science and information technology. And Lucy knew me through a friend, a mutual friend. She approached me and she told me about this thing she wanted to do and she wanted to get me involved. And, you know, she basically said, I'm, I'm not doing it for gender parity reasons. That's the outcome. I'm doing it because if we want to be innovative as a country, we got to get a lot more girls and women involved in computer science. And I said, you had me at the word innovation. And so I got in, I became the founding chair of NCWIT. Now, Amy and I are equal partners in our relationship. My parents are equal partners in their relationship. So I grew up in an environment with very equal partners between the husband and the wife, very heteronormal relationship, but very equal partners. Mm -hmm. And so even within tech, I hadn't thought that hard about uh, gender diversity and the dynamics around it, although I, I lived in it. Uh, in, in a situation that didn't have much gender equity. Um, one of my partners at Mobius uh, was Heidi Roizen, um, who's a very, very close friend and um, 
I spent a ton of time with, with Heidi over the years and heard numerous, numerous stories of inequities and the dynamics with her as a female VC, one of the very few at the time, and on and on and on. What, what happened was within about three to six months of starting to work with Lucy, I realized that when men showed up at the gender equity discussion as mostly white men in the context of tech, mm-hmm. at best what they said and did was neutral. And most of the time it was hurtful and harmful. And so I realized that whatever I knew or thought or preconceived notions I had about gender equity, they were likely wrong. And so I just changed my entire approach and thinking around it. And you could say it was sort of classic beginner's mind, but the language that we adopted at NCWIT, which is now broadly used language, um, is uh, uh, the notion of a male advocate. And uh, today we talk about them as allies. In racial equity, we talk about it as accomplices. And I like the language of uh, advocate, ally, accomplice. They do have different meanings. I generally use advocate and and accomplice. I, I think they're more powerful. Um, but I, I helped co-create that with Lucy and NC Witt and sort of that embodied how I approach diversity and, and the issues of equity. When George Floyd got murdered, I realized that Amy and I had been very longtime supporters of social justice initiatives, but very passive. I had been a very passive participant in racial equity and more specifically the elimination of racism in America. And that passivity included activity in tech and entrepreneurship and venture capital. And so I spent the second half of the year, you know, among other things, going very deep on that. And I don't think we have time to go extensively around it, but I've talked about another podcast. And I took the same approach. I assumed that pretty much anything I said or thought about racial equity, about racism, about social justice, any conversations I showed up at, at best, what I would say or do would be neutral and that it had the potential to be harmful harmful or hurtful. And so I had to be uncomfortable and I just allowed myself to be uncomfortable. I had to engage, Uh, I had to do things and I had to show up as an accomplice or an advocate, not as somebody who was solving a problem or who knew the answer. Yeah, so well said. And I think one of the last questions we we have here just with the time today, uh, you know, I've read startup communities uh, years ago, as I mentioned, um, the Boulder thesis, I think, has been a guiding light for many. Uh, and I know you have a new book out um, right now. Uh, and maybe you can uh, mention what, what that's about. But what has really driven you to write these books that have been, I think, impactful for, for many, not in just building companies, but also building the communities around those successes? Yeah, so the, the new book is a sequel to Startup Communities. It's called uh, uh, The Startup Community Way. And for Eric Reese fans uh, and Lean Startup fans, it's an homage to his second book, which is called The Startup Way. Uh, and I asked Eric if I could use the Startup Community Way as a title, uh, as an homage. And he said, yes, and he actually wrote the, uh, the foreword to the book. So there's a lot of cool. intellectual linkages between Eric's work on Lean Startup and my work on startup communities. And we've talked about that over the years. Um, my motivate, so, so, you know, if people are interested in startup communities, I encourage you to grab a copy of the Startup Community Way, uh, available at all fine booksellers uh, online uh, for you. Um, the, uh, for me, the motivation is I learn more by writing and reading than I do by listening. I learn by listening, but I learn more by writing and reading. 
I've been blogging for a very long time now, since I think 2004, because that's, I like to get my thoughts out in public and get feedback. And it's not so much the feedback, even although it's useful, it's the act of writing the thoughts down and working through them and committing them to paper that's so powerful for me. Mm-hmm. So, so I've been doing that uh, for a long time. I le- I've always loved to write. And uh, I decided to start to learn the long form writing. And there's a very big difference between writing a blog post and writing an email and writing a book. And so now having written seven books, um, you know, it's been something that has been a great joy to me intellectually, but I do it as part of being in service to other people. It's, uh, you know, I learn a lot from my own experiences. Um, I have lots of hypotheses, some of them, many of them are wrong. Um, and putting those out into the world in a way for people to consume and ponder and incorporate into what they're doing in the context of entrepreneurship uh, has been something that's been really stimulating and fun for me and has, for, has forced or caused me to codify more rigorously some of my thinking. I love it. I can't help but think like you are living growth mindset, like putting your thoughts on paper and then posting them publicly to get critical feedback is something that terrifies people and excites others. And clearly (laughs) you are the one who is excited by it. So that's amazing. Um, And also very inspiring. So as we wrap up here, we have a few rapid fire questions, um, which are just, uh, I guess the short form. So going away from the long form, we're going into the short form. Now you get less than a sentence. (laughs) Is, uh, is, uh, so I love that you love reading because the first rapid fire is, what is the book currently on your nightstand? So what are you reading right now? Well, I have a couple because um, uh, I often read several several books. Uh, one of them is the book I'm listening to while I run uh, uh, is the second book of the Broken Earth series uh, by N.K. Jessamine. She is the best, uh, uh, I think she's the best female black sci-fi writer that exists today. She's just spectacular. And there aren't a lot of women who write sci-fi and there are not a lot of women who are black who write sci-fi. So she's just, she's a special, amazing writer because she's better, not just as a black female sci-fi writer. I I said it wrong. She's one of the best sci-fi writers today. Mm -hmm. And she happens to be a black woman. So I I link them together. So that's one. I listened to The Obelisk as her second book um, in that series. I have a book called The Future of Text uh, that I'm reading. Uh, that's a bunch of short essays by people that just came out about the idea around what text is in the future. Hmm. Um, and then I'm reading a book by uh, Neil Stevenson, and I don't have the title, but it's basically his collected essays. So Neil Stevenson, who's another amazing sci-fi writer, one of my favorites, relatively recently released um, a bunch of short essays and stories. He apparently, is, his publisher told him he was famous enough that he could do something like that. Um, <laughs> Uh, so they package it up and it's great because it goes back into the 1990s, but it also includes some contemporary stuff. Love it. What is your most productive time of day? Morning. Uh, uh, I'm an early to bed guy. Amy and I don't drink uh, uh, for mostly for health reasons. I run a lot. Uh, we're in bed by nine o'clock. Usually sometimes, you know, there would be nights we're in bed before eight o'clock. Uh, we get up early and I would say till 11 o'clock is, is my sweet spot. Okay, sweet. So time you go to bed is nine. What about the time you wake up? Uh, It it varies. I used to be that guy that woke up at five o'clock every morning, no matter what time zone I'm in. Uh, I stopped using an alarm clock in uh, 2013. And so now I wake up whenever I'm done sleeping. 
And that could range from, you know, 4.45 to, you know, 8.30, o'clock. Crazy. I love it. That, that's very cool. I also want to get rid of that's, that. That's goals. Life goals for me is getting rid of the alarm clock. What is your favorite podcast? I am a, a long-term and consistent listener to Tim Ferriss' podcast. I think Tim is uh, the best uh, at, at the long-form exploratory essay. And, you know, if people don't know Tim's podcast, he usually is interviewing somebody around something they've just done, a book, a movie. But the book and the movie are not the, are not the podcast. The podcast is going deep on the person and learning lessons from the person. Um, I also uh, very much enjoy the Give First podcast, which I co-host with David Cohen at Techstars, um, where we interview for 30 minutes mentors from and entrepreneurs from around the Techstar system. That's self-promoting, I know, but David does a lot of the interviews. I do a few of them. Um, and then, you know, I've, I've sort of ebb and flow off specific podcasts. Instead of subscribing to a bunch, um, I, I when friends send me one that they think is interesting or somebody... Uh, that I don't necessarily know sends me one that they've done. I listen to them because that's how I learn about other people. So I'm much more interested in that kind of podcast surfing than the, every time a podcast comes out being obsessed about it. Cool. And then final rapid fire is, is there a motto, mantra, or, or quote that you live by or that in, continues to inspire you? Sure. Lots of them. Um, my father, when I was a teenager, said to me, if you're not standing on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Uh, so that one, um, uh, that one comes around a lot. Uh, another one is, um, uh, I'm going to say it's a concept. It's not a quote because there's many different quotes and the quotes can be mysterious, but it's a concept from uh, Buddhism of non-attachment, not, not detachment, but non-attachment. And there's a lot of things from that. And then um, whether you're a fan of Alice Shrugged or not, there is one, there are a number of really great quotes from the book, but one of them is from the, one of the protagonists, John Galt says, um, uh, there, oh, I lost it because of this. Um, I've lost the quote, um, but one of, one of the great, uh, one of the great John Galt quotes, um, uh, is one of my favorites. Great. That's and I guess good. maybe it can't be that firm in my mind anymore if I can't, uh, here we go, <laughs> I got it. God, I got it, I got it. No one stays here by faking reality in any manner whatsoever. Mm. So job. again, you can you can kind of get the linkages of all those quotes. It's kind of funny when your brain loses it. I guess that's what happens when you're 55. Um, but oh, but that, that. That, that quote I like so much. My mother, who is an artist, um, made me a couple of paintings. And one of the quotes uh, is that quote. Very cool. I gotcha. And I know we're, we're just about at time, but one last question for you, Brad. And what's that one bit of advice you have for any emerging tech leaders out there today? Give first. I mean, it's the, you know, it's the mantra that we use at Techstars, but I think it's so key to community. If you're willing to put energy into your startup community, without defining upfront what you're going to get back. If you can get everybody in the startup community doing that, the growth of the startup community will accelerate. The challenge is when people say, I'll get involved if dot, dot, dot. It's just get involved. And then there's so much stuff that there is opportunities to have come your way or to define transactionally, but it's that starting inertia that's so important to overcome. 
Awesome. Well, Brad, thank you so much for taking the time and chatting with us today. For those who are tuning in, uh, you can go to palmbeachtech.org to learn uh, more about what our organization does to help build our tech community here in South Florida. Uh, shout out to WinCode and Joe's company, uh, the premier uh, coding bootcamp here in South Florida. If you're looking for um, a, uh, a, a cohort for digital marketing, uh, web development, it, you know, go to wincode.co to learn more. And Brad, thanks so much for taking some time here and uh, chatting with us. It was really enjoyable. Thanks a ton for having me. And uh, I expect and hope our paths will cross in the future. So don't be strangers. You're, you always got an open invitation in the South Florida, Brad. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. See y'all. We'd like to thank our producing sponsor, MediaOps. They're the premier global media platform for technical communities with brands such as DevOps.com, Security Boulevard, Container Journal, and Digital Anarchist. DevOps.com, their primary brand, attracts and engages a thriving online community of technology professionals around the world. It is the largest collection of original content relating to DevOps on the web today, featuring up-to-the-minute news, highlighted stories, blogs, and more.